0: Me, uh, turn to me. Turn with me to Matthew chapter five, that we might consider verse six in particular of the Beatitudes. Matthew five and verse six simply says, "Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled." Again, a statement and a promise. Let us bow in prayer. Father, again, as we come to this, your word, we ask your blessing upon us as we not only read it, but to think upon it and as we ponder it. May our encouragement be enriched and the weakness of our faith be challenged, that the fears of facing this world uh, would dissipate, that we might know absolutely, absolutely, the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ, to know Christ not only as Lord and Savior, but to know Him as King. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Well, over the last uh, few visits, we've considered these Beatitudes one at a time, and I re- realize it gets a bit boring when you consider them one at a time, and particularly when uh, we're not—I'm not here with you. Um, on a week-to-week basis. In some way, we lose the thought of continuity. But it's speaking of salvation in these first uh, verses 3 to 5 in particular. And one of the consequences of salvation, uh, they are poor in... Those who come to faith are poor in spirit. They are those who mourn their sin. Uh, They are meek before the world and before Christ. They've submitted to the Lord... In Jesus Christ, that's conversion, that's coming to faith. And there are certain consequences that flow from coming to faith. And verse 6, we have the first of those consequences. Where genuine faith exists, we are told that we will hunger and thirst for a knowledge of God. God. Christian believer, are you aware that you are hungry? Are you aware that you thirst for a knowledge of God in Jesus Christ? Or as the scripture puts it, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? You see, it comes with a promise. They shall be filled. In other words, the more we hunger, the more we thirst, the more we do something about it, the more we will be filled with the righteousness, the holiness of Jesus Christ. We are to put on the righteousness of Christ. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, and I want to come to this this morning and encourage us all, To ponder our position. And it also tells us that uh, if we are of a mind, well I've come to faith in Jesus Christ, do I not have my salvation? Well the answer to that, if we've come to Jesus Christ in genuine faith, then yes we do have a salvation. But without holiness, it is impossible to please God. In other words, God does something for us in salvation. He imparts his love and his grace, or imputes it to us, I should say. But then he says, now go on putting on righteousness. Blessed are those happy, satisfied are those who hunger and thirst for a knowledge of Christ. It is not sufficient just to say, well, Christ died for me, I believe that, therefore that's the end. No, we're to take that initial knowledge of salvation in Jesus Christ and apply it. And the only place that we can come to to know God, to answer these pangs of hunger and thirst, to satisfy them, is the word of God written If we are to have eternal have a salvation, then verses 3 to 5 are absolutely essential. They form the basis of the Christian faith. But we shouldn't stop there. The facts that follow, not only in verse 6 but in verse 7, in verse 8 and verse 9 and verse 10, to be practiced they are the consequences of coming to faith in Jesus Christ the consequence of those who are in genuine relationship of faith with Jesus Christ or through Jesus Christ are those who will hunger and thirst they are those who will be merciful just as God has been merciful to them they will be pure in heart. In other words, they will be filled with integrity and they will practice it and seek to deliberately practice it. They are the peacemakers. They understand what it is to, be, to have peace with Almighty God. And so the only way that society can have peace is to be right with God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake theirs is the kingdom of heaven you see if you practice your faith at some point you're going to be challenged and you're going to be ridiculed some people like to go and look for that we don't need to go and look for it all you can do is turn your television on and your faith the christian faith is attacked one way or another day by day the government persists with its challenge to the marriage act that's on the table in parliament in its current form then your faith is going to come under attack ministers are going to go to jail eventually because they refuse to marry same-sex couples that's persecution. You don't have to go looking for it. It'll come to you. And as citizens of the Church of Jesus Christ, each of us is going to be challenged. Will your faith stand up to that challenge even when it comes? millions today want happiness. There's no question of that. We all want happiness and a satisfying life. Nothing wrong with that. But too many obtain it through the material, try and obtain it through the material benefits of this world. And all of the material benefits and graces that we have come from the hand of God. Everything that is good. He holds nothing back from anybody. Every good thing comes from the hand of God. And yet society, the more it has, the more it wants. The more it wants, the less it has, so it thinks. And society is littered with the consequences of greed and avarice, which we see in nations, the consequences of it in nations today. Whether that be the United States Who would want to be the next president in with the debt that it's got? Who would want to be in the European economy with the unbelievable debt that it's got itself into? Not because of accident, because of deliberate greed. Righteousness doesn't rub off. Many people think that they can sit in church and go along with everything that it teaches without being involved but just attending and they think they are right with God. Righteousness does not rub off. It's something imputed to us. True happiness can only come through the pursuit of righteousness. That is a knowledge of God. <clears throat> now I've used the word imputed and as we come to this text, I want to speak not only of imputed righteousness, but also of imparted righteousness. Now, this text here speaks of imparted righteousness. Uh, it sounds a, bit, a little bit odd to use these two terms. But if you turn to Genesis 15 and 6, where we've got the conversion of Abraham described in Genesis 15 and verse 6 in particular in the first few verses God gives Abraham a promise and when we read it's a renewal it's a restatement of the covenant of grace and he promises a son a great nation and so on And verse 6 simply tells us, and he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he, God, accounted it, imputed it to Abraham for righteousness. When we come to faith, God imputes us, imputes to us. It's something he does in us. The righteousness of Christ. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians uh, that we read. You are new creatures in Christ. What has God done? He's done something in us that changes us into, to, to recognize the likeness of Jesus Christ. He's initially done that imputing work. Declared us to be right to enter into the kingdom of God. By well, nothing other than simple faith in Jesus Christ. That's imputed faith. It's God declaring us. Because we have believed. It's God declaring us right to enter into his presence. That's imputed righteousness. Or if you like, uh, in theological terms, it's called justification. We're using big words here, but they all mean much the same thing. But then there is imparted righteousness and our verse here in our text says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness another word that can be used for imparted righteousness is to be sanctified to be set apart they all come from the same word group in the original language so here the ones who are happy are those who thirst and hunger, who desire to be holy in Jesus Christ. Holy does not mean perfectness, although it's implied, I guess. But that's not what it means. It simply means to be set apart. To be holy or to be sanctified means to be set apart for the purposes of God. That's all it means. We cannot have one foot in eternity and the other foot in the world. We cannot have both feet sitting in church on a Sunday for an hour or whatever it is and go out of church and live in the world as the world lives and come back next Sunday not having prayed, not having read the word of God. Or we're trying to do when we do that and conduct our lives in that manner Calling ourselves Christians but forgetting the eternal God in Jesus Christ for the rest of the week. It's simply trying to have the righteousness of Christ rub off on us. It doesn't work. So we have imputation. It's simply a forensic term, an accounting firm. If you're an accountant, you have inputs and the ledger may have a debt on it. Christ has, or God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to cancel our debt of sin and made us to be Christ-like. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, just let me read that. It comes to my mind as we're thinking about that. <clears throat> just as he, God, chose us in Christ, <clears throat> before the foundation of the world and what's his purpose in calling us before he even created the universe. He knew us, we're told. This is our God. He knew us before he even created us. Before we were a twinkle in our parents' eyes. He knew us. His purpose is simple. That we should be holy, set apart, sanctified, pursue the knowledge of god without and be without blame before him that's god's purpose in eternity it's his role in eternity for his people and his church what does righteousness mean i've tried to explain it but let me make it clear from the scripture Turn to the Old Testament chapter, chapter in <clears throat> Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 in verse 25. Well, we'll start at verse 24. This is the biblical definition of what I've trying to, been trying to say. Earlier in the chapter, the Lord has commanded Israel, in verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, (coughs) the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. When we get to the end of the chapter, Scripture says this in verse 24, And the Lord commanded us to observe all of these statutes, To fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Verse 25, and this is the key. Then it will be righteousness for us if we obey these statutes, the word of God, the command of God. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all of these commandments before the Lord our God. As he has commanded us, so to be righteous is to be like God, to conform to His word, conform to His, therefore, to His character. We go through the Ten Commandments. We think of them as law, but I prefer to them to think as a description of the character of God, to which we must conform. The law, the Ten Commandments, uh, thou shalt not steal for argument's sake. It's not primarily the problem of taking a biro off somebody's desk. Without, you know, We do it. I used to work at a council office and I would come home with a biro or two biros in the, my top pocket and I'd put them on my desk at home because I'd sit down after an evening meal and do, council, do work for, for the council. And I'd leave the biros on my desk. And after a month, I might have 20 or 30 bios sitting on my desk and I suddenly realise how did all these get here? You take them back a bit sheepish and get shot at when the office staff realised what you were doing. We are to keep the law of God. It's strict adherence and conformity to the law of God. That's what Deuteronomy tells us. So, when we're talking righteousness here, if we're to understand what righteousness is, it's not the act of stealing per se, it's what's wrong in the human heart to start with. That's the issue of the Ten Commandments. It describes God. He's one who doesn't steal, he gives abundantly. He doesn't take away from us. He's promised that I will never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't say you're not going to have hard times. But he's promised to be with us always. It's not the act that is the real problem of the Ten Commandments, the the law. It's the problem of the heart in the beginning that the law is trying to deal with. The law shows us our sin. It's a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. Well, I've said also that not only is there imputed and imparted righteousness, but here we've got justification, which is imputed, and here we've got sanctification, which is imparted. Sanctification simply means again, Holiness, conformity to the law of God to be set apart, all coming from the same word group, Uh, all describing our position before God as His people. When we come to again thinking about a text. Turn back to Psalm 1 that we read earlier. We've got the same idea running through this first Psalm. This idea of living in righteousness or living in, or putting on righteousness. It gives us an illustration of what it is to go on putting on what has already been granted to us. And how do we know that we are a Christian? Verse 2, his delight, the Christian's delight is in the law of God. And in that law, that word of God, he what? Or she what? Meditates day and night. It doesn't mean that we sit 24 hours a day, apart from when we go to sleep, with the Bible open in front of us but it does mean that we ponder it. Years ago when I was working with the council, I walked to work about 15 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, depending on how lazy I was. And I used to walk along and Think about what I'd read in the scriptures to the family and the kids the night before. We ponder it. But I didn't walk up the street with my Bible wide open. Pretending to be some sort of super Christian. That's to look for persecution. We commanded in the scripture not to do that. We're told just to simply live our lives. I will never forsake you nor leave you. In the word of God, we meditate day and night. It's interesting, when you go to Psalm 2, in verse 1, it says, uh, in the second line, the people plot in, uh, why do the people plot a vain thing? The word plot is exactly the same word used in verse 2, meditate. Meditate. The enemies of Christ meditate on how to undo his word. What's the consequence of meditating day and night? That Christian man or woman, boy or girl, will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And the, the, the David here, as he writes, uh, is um, he's got an idea and he's, backyard he's got an orchard and he's got trees fruit trees planted and he's got a drain ditch a ditch runs from tree to tree to tree so that it can be irrigated that's what the scripture calls a river here he's not thinking again of the Murray River or or the Loddon or whatever it is that we have nearby he's thinking of his backyard that's the idea of it and it's called rivers here and that fruit tree has got its roots down into the mud and the moisture that that ditch or drain supplies. And when it is the Christian's privilege to read the scripture, to ponder it, they're going to be like that tree with our spiritual roots, the roots of our hearts and our souls going down into the moisture that is the word of God written. What's the consequence of that? It brings forth its fruit in its season. The leaf will not wither. Whatever they do shall prosper. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to prosper because you scratch the garden. Uh, that's not the prospering that it means. Obviously, if you look after a garden, it'll grow things. But in everything you do from a, in seeking and hungering after righteousness and the knowledge of God, you will prosper. That's what it's saying to us. And when we come to our text, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who meditate on the word of God day and night. They shall be like a tree that's planted by the rivers of water. It brings forth its fruit in its season. You see, there's a promise that each one of us can apply to our own hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And verse 3 simply tells us that we're not to live simply by the material products that keep us alive, but we're to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when God, when that verse appears in the scripture, what's the background to it? Israel's in the wilderness. and The Lord's feeding them manna. And a, um, a quail at night. For meat. What's he saying? I'll feed you. I'll give you what you need to live physically. But you must learn to live by every word that comes from my mouth. So that we might have hearts and minds to do it even Today. imputed righteousness is our conversion and the coming to faith to put on righteousness is to hunger and thirst for a knowledge of God how can we be like Christ how can we conform to his will unless we ponder and meditate on the word of God if you want to know what your attitude to the scripture should be read Psalm 119 it's a big, long psalm, but it's simple and to the point. It tells us what our attitude ought to be to the word of God written. <clears throat> well, the text finishes with a promise, doesn't it? They shall be filled. Not only will our knowledge of God in Jesus Christ increase so that more, more and more we would trust him and love him but it's also promising those who do grow in their knowledge who do grow in their holiness that they shall be filled your joy and salvation in Jesus Christ would be made complete today is your joy increasing in Jesus Christ? Do we allow the world to confuse us as to the rightness or the wrongness of the word of God? In our heart of hearts, where do we stand? Do we hunger? Do we desire to read the scriptures privately? To learn to pray privately? apart from attending public worship. When God imputes His right, the righteousness of Christ to us, he sees us as perfect. He sees us as robed in the righteousness of Christ. Imparted righteousness. I am yet to be made perfect. Yes. But it's an ongoing process and where To aid the Holy Spirit, he can't do it, unless we are willing. He can save us. And he can help us grow in our knowledge of God, for that is his desire. Do we allow him to lead us into the scriptures? Do we allow him to teach us his word? Amen.